When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Jonah Primo, and along with Bronwyn Reed, we produce Principle of Charity with hosts and creators Emil Sherman and Lloyd Vogelman. The mission of Principle of Charity is to inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. But today we just thought we'd try something different and offer a peek behind the curtain. We'll draw down on some of our own views and offer you something similar to our dinner table conversations, which are always great fun, at least for us. I think what makes Lloyd and Emil such fantastic hosts for a podcast like this, like Principle of Charity, is as you'll hear from the first five seconds of the show... They will question and challenge literally everything. Enjoy. And we're live. Well, we don't even need to say that we're live. That's the whole point. Yeah, but it's good to know you're live, right? Well, depends what you're trying to catch. Are we trying to catch the truth or, or, or the presentation of the truth? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, just for the record, I didn't think the audience, our audience really wanted insights into Lloyd and my thinking that they're interested in the topics. And and so this is your idea, Jonah. It's on you and Lloyd that... that that we've developed enough of a relationship so that some people might want to know what we actually think about things or... Well, I think you're underselling yourself. That's my position. That's my official position. Are you truly being modest or is that false modesty? Well, I wouldn't want to here. So (laughs) I'm just projecting myself. Yeah, but you live with your brain, right? You've got self-esteem. You you like yourself. You, You say things at dinner parties regularly. I've heard you say things well he likes himself but maybe he's just sick of himself both can be true well it's a it's it's like depends is it a dinner party audience or look i'm just advising the audience if you if you do want to turn off obviously you're free and uh and and come back when we have some real expert guests on the show (laughs) yeah i never want to hear another opinion from you again (laughs) on opinions i mean my general sense more and more is that opinions are overrated i know you like your net positive net negative lloyd which is great uh, addition. Opinions, net negative. It's, Why? Opinions Why? are a dime a dozen. Everyone has an opinion. I've got an opinion. But so is data. Data is a dime a dozen. There's tons of data. Data is a dime a dozen, but understanding different viewpoints is rare. Understanding uh, an issue, an important issue from different sides and really uh, you know, understanding it generously, that's rare. Having an opinion on it in the end of the day, I mean, I don't even know what the point of that is, really. I mean, I, I guess, uh, you know. Well, how would you exchange ideas without opinions? I think that's, I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> I think you do. I mean, I think. Can I just say before you carry on that your, your view about understanding others, I, I think, is, net, is a net positive statement. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think you can. I mean, I love discussions where you're exchanging understanding of ideas by, by lo- looking at the diamond from all sides and 
and make and, and testing the logic of things and pushing and pulling. But you don't need to come at it with an opinion, I don't think. I, I, I have lots of good discussions without opinions. Well, so how do you do that? How do you have a pointy exchange of information without an opinion? Isn't a hypothesis an opinion? Well, I mean, I think you've already, you know, framed it through your use of the word pointy. Like, you know, the, the aim, if the aim is to get to the truth, don't start, you don't need to start with a pointy hypothesis. You could start with a, you know, you could start with, I guess, a pointy idea, which maybe you don't necessarily believe in, but you go, look, why isn't freedom the most important thing? You know, what follows from that? And you go, well, what about uh, equality? How does that conflict with freedom? You can toss ideas around without going, I believe strongly, because people default so quickly to this is what I think. And you're like, hold on, I don't even know what gives anyone the right to have a strong opinion, because we know our opinions are so moderated through everything, you know, our culture and upbringing and our, our interactions and DNA and just everything. So like, it just seems a little pointless to be so proud of your opinion when someone equally intelligent uh, or unintelligent or um, educated can come to a, a, a different opinion. Wait, but hold on. What, hold what, on. What, what, Isn't what, that, can I just, sorry, Jada, can I just, <laughs> 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 can I just say, you can have an opinion without being proud That's of it. That's exactly what I was going to say. Thank you. Yeah. Why don't you say it again? You can. <laughs> well, that's like, isn't that what the principle of charity is? You come that's in with right. an opinion, you're open to other opinions, and yeah. then you're not proud. A hundred percent. And the point about if you have an opinion and you're not proud of it, then you're open to saying, I've changed my opinion based on your argument or data or evidence, but I'm not sure how science or knowledge uh, improves without opinions, with hypotheses, and then testing those opinions. If you have an opinion and you are overly proud of it or arrogant about it, then I agree with you, Emil. But I think without opinions, we we it's a very, very slow progress towards knowledge exchange. Yeah, I'd add that it's a it's a shortcut, right? Not everybody wants to do all the due diligence on every topic they you know you could just listen to someone you trust and listen to their opinion and assume they've done the vetting for you but it's the difference between opinion and hypothesis that i think in a hypothesis is an opinion you hold lightly um, but you're ready to change it and if you come into a conversation with a hypothesis and you're open to other views then that's that's exciting and a great way to launch a conversation in the search of truth but i guess i'm just saying there's so much dogmatic opinion out there where people do seem genuinely proud that they think this they feel like they've got the answer and their aim is to push their opinion on someone else i'm like that seems like that's an overrated thing and 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 i agree jonah that you know we live in a world we can't we, we can't do the due diligence on every topic so we need to know who who which influences we want yeah, to be influenced by the intellectual influences the intellectual influences but again you know so many of the conversations by our intellectual influences are with people who agree with them and they're sort of uh, reaffirming their opinions so what what i love about the conversations that we have is that i get to hear two different opinions and that feels more expansive than just um than than just uh Listening to people who are really proud that they they've uh, solved they've solved the question. So I'm gonna I, I don't know whether now I've got an opinion or a hypothesis in your <laughs> lexicon or terminology. I think you can be. By the way, I think you can be very fixed on a hypothesis or a hypothesis and ignore data that disconfirms your hypothesis and hence 
you know, you're not doing a good experiment or being very scientific. But on that note, just on our show and difference of opinions, me and you have had a difference of opinion on whether we've got enough difference on the show. So I want to ask Jonah, hmm. not you, because I sort of know your opinion or I know your view. Jonah, do you think we have enough difference on the principle of charity? Well, I don't think that there's a right amount of difference of opinion. And I spoke to Emil about this recently. It depends on whether or not you want a really broad, wide audience or whether or not you want to get to the truth. There's, there's shows like this where they'll get flat earthers and physicists in the same room. And then you have a massive different difference of opinion, but it's a little hard to take the flat earthers seriously. And so you don't learn a whole lot from the conversation. Whereas you can have people who, you know, like some of the guests that we have, they're incredibly educated. They've done all the ins and outs. They already know all the other side of the argument. And so they're sympathetic to a lot of them because they're so well-researched and so well-rounded. And you end up getting a lot of truth because you've got so many smart people in the room, but it doesn't make, it's not exciting in the same way as a fiery back and forth is exciting. Yeah, but you, so, so that's where I think I differ slightly. And I think we are not 100% clear and probably Emil and I still have that tension. Uh, is, is the principle of charity, is the primary objective focused on getting to the truth or is the primary objective the demonstration of a principle of charity? That's yeah, that's the. That's uh, the and, or is it a is is it a sort of a hybrid um, with two dimensions that are you know equally contributing, or have we just got one dominant side which is seeking the truth? Your values are really tested when you are most stressed or when everything is going against you, and so I think you know. That's a debate yeah. that, that, that we have not resolved, I think, between... I don't think it's resolvable. I mean, that's the good thing. It's sort of like there, there's, there is a slight tension. Um, I mean, I would say even in your introduction, Lloyd, you know, you, you say that the aim of the show is to have generous, curious conversations which seek the truth. But in a sense, you can't get to the truth. I mean, just to sort of let this contradiction turn back on itself, you can't get to the truth unless you have two spiky different points of view. That's what we're saying as well. You need difference of opinion in order to get to the truth. And well, Jonah, Jonah didn't say that. Jonah was arguing. Well, I think he that. says he said. I mean, it's finding that balance because if you, if people are, if you've got a flat earther and a physicist, is that going to help us get to the truth, or is it better to have? I mean, I think we've had some conversations, many conversations, really, with which square the circle where you've got both things, where you've got real experts with valid and validly different points of view who really believe passionately in what they're saying, but who do have enough expertise to understand the arguments on the other side. I mean, what comes to mind is the the one on voluntary sister dying, euthanasia, um, with Andrew Denton and, and, and Bernadette. And, and, and they're both extraordinary experts, but passionate believers in their points of view. So, you know, we just got to keep aiming, uh, you know, keep but aiming for that. But I see, I think that was a high, for me, that was a really high quality show because I think we did have two experts who really understood their subject matter and came from very differing points of view. Um, so I think they had to, I think we learned a lot about the topic in and of itself. And I think both of them had to demonstrate 
uh, a real yeah. understanding or charitable understanding of the other. And I would actually also say, you know, the 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 other episode where I think we had that, uh, although it may not have been as obvious, was the liberalism versus conservatism. You know, when we we had Tim Wilson and Greg Connolly, it it it, it remains one of our most popular shows, um, and they were both experts in their philosophical area. Um, and uh, I think they both had to actually again demonstrate uh, charity. Yeah, I, I agree. That's actually one of my favorite episodes. And I remember going into that not being particularly excited. So that's a really good point. And some people have different opinions and are experts, but they're just more congenial when they talk. Maybe I think the one on, um, on cultural appropriation and storytelling was they genuinely had um, more different opinions. Their opinions differed greater in real life than, than was shown on the episode. Some people just become a bit more congenial when, when you get them in a room together. Well, well let, let, me, let me ask both of you this one. Our probably most conflictual episode was on identity politics, yeah, should racial identity form a basis for politics with Chloe Valderi and, and Ian Handley-Lopez. John, I'm going to ask you this. On reflection... Do you think that was a successful, a successful episode? That's that's re- that's really tricky. That's really tricky. I mean, it, it comes back again to the way it's a very entertaining episode, but in two hours, I learnt less than I have in forty-five minutes of other episodes. That's the only way I can phrase it. But I was into thoroughly entertained. Well, I don't I don't understand why you learnt less. Well, because there was so much back and forth and nitpicking. Oh, I see. That, yeah. that wasn't getting to the truth. That wasn't actually expanding upon any of my mm. preconceived mm. ideas. There was a lot of bickering, really, that just sort of used up time. But then as a listener, I was like, oh, this is, this is great content. This feels like a reality TV show. But I wasn't learning as, as fast as I do on some of the other episodes where it's less conflictual. So, I, again, it comes down to the definition of success, which is where I think the three of us are all slightly misaligned. And the other thing is, I would say, we have resolved it a little bit because that is the difference between Emile's show and On the Couch because Emile's show is centered around getting to the truth and your show is centered around getting people to really look into the principle of charity and explore that as a concept. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we need the right questions as well, don't we? We need pointy questions. If you don't ask the right question, you're not setting yourself up for an interesting answer. So, so, Emil, when you are doing your movies and producing a movie, you know, where's, where's, where's the emphasis for you? Drama, truth, showing difference? Well, I think what's great about the arts is the characters have to be true, you know? I was actually watching um, the season of, of Wednesday, this uh, great uh, Netflix sort of YA show yesterday, and it's really well done. It's a fantastic show. The last few episodes... I felt like the plot was pushing ahead of the characters' truths. And and so I felt manipulated. And it's so hard to do. It's so hard to pull off successfully. But that's the aim. Because every for every character that you create um, in, in the world of fiction and art uh, and story, they, they have to, in order to affect you emotionally, they have to resonate as being truthful in and of themselves. And so you've got people, and to have drama... You need different points of view. You know, going back to your drama point, Lloyd, you need conflict in drama. Sometimes I think a lot of drama on TV is like too heightened. It's like that you get a cheap, almost pornographic thrill out of heightened situations where the drama flows so easily. What's really tricky, 
you know, when we started the King's Speech, and I remember telling my my mother in law that we were doing a a, a film about that king. And it's like, who would be interested? Her view was, who would be interested in that man? You know, someone just can't speak. You know, he's got a speech impediment. Like, who cares if you can get drama out of small things? I think that's a lot harder than big things. But they come out of conflict, and you need truthful, different people with different opinions and different viewpoints. And that's what is that's what that's what that's what's exciting about um, the world of storytelling. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Jonah, there's a question I want to ask you. This is something you put down to ask us, but I'm going to throw it back to you. What social issues are you interested in now? And what what do you think what do you think we should talk about? You know, what are, are there a couple of topics you're interested in us jumping into in the next season? I, I think at the moment AI is taking up a lot of my space. Yeah. I would say my headspace. So just uh where it's going, chat GPT, mid journey. And I think it's it's strange. I was talking to uh, Izzy, my partner, and we were talking about. I just listened to a podcast on on the metaverse, and you know, I, I forget the name of who it was who was saying it, but he was saying basically everything will be on the metaverse in fifteen twenty years. And Izzy that didn't really understand what the metaverse was, but she she said, "I I know I don't want that. I don't want the future." So I was like, "Okay, well, you know, we're thirty, and we already." don't want the future so i'm kind of i'm kind of interested in a the fact that ai is threatening all these different things but b this sort of generational shift where you start to feel threatened from the younger generation which has never happened before because i've always considered myself the younger generation well yeah i know jonathan heights talked a lot about those the generation that's been native to the iPhone and the effect on their worldview and and resilience and a whole range of things, mental health. But the AI, the generation brought up on AI is obviously going to have a very different, (laughs) stuff from the generation brought up on augmented reality, but the AI generation, whatever that looks like, is is just going to have to be qualitatively different from everything else that's come before. But let me ask you this. If I'm a fearful person, that's my baseline. Do I now be just become fearful of AI? And if I'm not a fearful person, do I not worry about it? Is is the baseline the emotion and then, you know, or the, the tray or the driver of the person and then how they understand the world is either fearful or not, just by the way? Just anecdotally, many of my my peers are also scared of new things like TikTok because we grew up on Facebook and Instagram and it's hard to tell if I'm part of an anxious group or if intrinsically new technology and disruptive technology is scary and being scared of new things is core to the human experience. So do you think, like, I'm not particularly, and and I should be because I understand lots of experts are, but I'm not particularly fearful of AI. Is, Is that in part just because of my naivety, do you think? Well, it could be part of your naivety it also could be where you are in your life cycle right as a you know I don't, the future I, I have less investment the in less the relevant for you the future <laughs> i've just got less years to go you've I mean, got no human capital left so it doesn't matter i've got less skin in the game literally than you because i because i'm older that's right yeah. pretty much it's what we the, the word we'd use in 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 storytelling is the stakes are less high for you the stakes are less high for me actually <laughs> yeah Although actually, you could argue because I have fewer years left, 
the stakes are very AI high. is not going to come to get come and get you in, in the same there's nothing to get there's nothing AI can take from you but the benefit for me see I like because as I get older health issues are more and more important I think AI is my savior yeah, I think that's a good point. So, so for me, it improves the quality of my life substantively in medicine and in health. Yeah, but that's because you've already you've got the means to utilize it, as opposed to have it take away the potential for more means. Your job and your future, like, uh, like oh, the- I see. From a job, a job. I I, I do agree with you, Lloyd. I, I really think we bring our intuitions into intellectual discussions, and that's what's been great about the topics we've covered i've i've brought my intuitions to things and tried to check them um and then heard different opinions and it's just it's just been great to be able to check one's intuitions on stuff mm, uh, mm. but but i'm naturally very optimistic and pro yeah. technological change but i'm terrified about ai so i do think it's pushed a lot of people who might otherwise be be excited about change and it feels like technology is 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 driving us as in it's it's taken control of our future and we're not really in control of, I mean, maybe maybe we're never in control of our technological inventions, mm. but in this case, it really feels that way. But what's, what I'm particularly interested in with AI, obviously, they're all the normal questions that, that people are considering all the time, but there's a topic I want to look at, which is can, AI, is, can AI create art? And it's that relationship between, I guess it just goes to the core of what makes us human. And I feel at the moment like we're living in a very transactional world where I don't know how to explain this, but people are are learning stuff at school because of they want jobs and universities all about trying to skill up and people are listening to music just purely for the enjoyment of the songs and even art, the idea that AI art is art is, is just based on the idea that how if we enjoy it and it looks good, then that's great. But the sort of what what sits outside the ones and zeros of the digital world and also just the ones and zeros of our, our human brain and that sort of idea that we have to, you know, we can reduce everything to the material and to utility. You know, that that scares me. It feels like it leaves a whole bunch of stuff on the table, which which I don't, maybe it's just the things I'm listening to. I feel people aren't talking so much about, which is the richness of human intention the you know complexity and ambiguity that happens when you bring a human being's creation into the world that somehow is inherently different to just maybe something that might look more interesting being AI art but it doesn't come from um, the messiness of, of, of a human subconscious so all these things are even with my father having passed away and thinking about does does um, consciousness survive death? I feel like we're in a world that is quite reductive to the material and to the useful. And I'd love to explore the tension between that mm. and the things that sort of lie outside that. Mm. Well, actually, linked to that is I'd like to explore whether ambiguity is a good thing or a bad thing. Whether, right. Whether ambiguity is net <laughs> yeah. positive or net negative. Because for what, though, Lloyd? Net positive, net, for what aim? Uh, actually, that's that, that's a good question. I'd say for for your happiness, we, we can easily reduce happiness to a utility. To a, you know, how do we maximize happiness? Yes, is something good. But say something that doesn't help us be happy. But it's you know, can, can things have value in and of themselves, even if they're not useful? Can 
can learning and curiosity and even pain be, you know, emotional pain be be of value, even if you can't prove that it leads to greater happiness. Maybe it leads to greater um, complexity, or maybe it leads to greater meaning, meaning, or maybe it leads to greater ambiguity, and ambiguity is the aim, not happiness. I think it's very easy for these arguments to fall back on themselves. I think there are times when you don't want any ambiguity. There's going to be in medicine or if you're running a nuclear power station, I don't want any ambiguity. I want things to be as clinical, to be as rigorous, to be as controlled. Um, and I, I would very much welcome AI in any of those situations where ambiguity uh, would lead to death or a substantive negative consequence. But can I can I question that as well, Lloyd? Because isn't any prediction of the future, whether it's you know using your medical records to predict you know the likelihood of you got Alzheimer's or cancer or whatever it's all about probability that taking out ambiguity you know you've looked at um, Tetlock's idea of super forecasters that if you actually want to understand the future and be able to forecast better you have to lean into ambiguity and probability and understand it rather than go our aim is to get rid of it. Our aim is actually to be able to quantify the ambiguity, not to eradicate it. But that's a type of getting rid of it, isn't it? Right. I, I could say not to eradicate it, but to get to the closest percentage of zero as possible. To quantify it, not eradicate yeah, and, it. And, and I could try and get to the closest percentage. I can never stop something happening at the nuclear power station. Something could always happen. It's always possible but I can reduce that possibility substantively through AI or any other mechanism. To understand that you've got a, this route has a 90% chance of success and another route has a 60% chance, even though both are ambiguous in a sense that we don't know which they'll go, the certainty um, is what you're after. I mean, unless you get satisfaction from learning for the sake of learning, doesn't knowledge reduce ambiguity, which reduces anxiety, which increases happiness? Doesn't no, it come back to I, I think a lot of knowledge and learning increases ambiguity. I think increases anxiety. And increases anxiety. People it sit probably in, feeds, it fits as a sort of fuel for anxiety. No, people sit in therapy, they, 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 they mull over issues, they deconstruct them, they go, here's the pros and cons, they overthink. It results in terrible suffering. Uh, because they, <laughs> they, they're so ambiguous. They're doing the pros and the cons. Trust me, I've done this. So I'm talking from experience. Um, and, and My therapy calms me down, Lloyd, I've got to say. But, uh... <laughs> I want to know what is something someone has said on the show that has truly blown your mind? Jonah? More interested in your response. You keep putting me on the spot. I wrote these questions to ask you. <laughs> I liked the very first episode with Ondine. I don't know why this is the thing that yeah, jumps right well, to my there head. There you go. There was drama in that episode. There was drama. There was drama. But Ondine was very hard line. She was hard line, my sister. This is my sister here. Yeah, this is your and, sister. And, 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 and Jonah's my son and he's not hard line. Well, <laughs> I'm not hard line to you. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> You're just gaming me. <laughs> so it's all an elaborate manipulation. It's just in manipulation. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so so this is just what jumps to my mind, but Matt and Undine were arguing about the fact that it's a primal instinct 
to eat meat. It's a core bestial hangover from however many thousands of years since our race began. And Ondine replied with what I thought was just the the ultimate cut down, which was we're human, we're better than that. We're, we're an mm. enlightened species that can do things that it's not designed to do. We know that murder's wrong, we know that rape's wrong, and as a result, we've done our best to phase them out of society. We might do them if we took the reins off. So why can't we do with that mm. with animals? And for me, mm. I don't know what, that was profound. It just was profound. It was just such a good point. Mm. Why, why, can't, why do we have to do things just because they're primal? I'm not sure we do. Maybe we are better than that. Well, we're obviously not, but maybe we could be. My sister does have that ability to just cut through with a powerful, simple moral yeah. um, dictum, really. Uh, I mean, to the to the first point we were talking about, how opinionated people are, she does have strong opinions. But yeah, no, that that is, that is falling back onto nature as somehow being virtuous in and of itself um, is, is very problematic, uh, is very problematic. Two things st- stood out for me when I was thinking about this. One is the Jane Campion episode. I do know Jane really well, but it always amazes me, her relationship with her subconscious, to yeah. develop a reliable, Yeah, I mean, that's the key, a reliable relationship where you can summon the fairies and they appear and they help you solve your problems, your creative problems, is extraordinary. And, and again, it sort of goes to that, it just... It's not how we normally talk about things in, in, in our very sort of concrete society these days, mm. and it sort of opened mm. my mind up. Um, and then to Robert Plowman, it's just so counterintuitive, so much of what he says about the power of genetics and the not just the power of genetics, but it's the, the lack of predictive power of our environment. That's mm. almost more powerful and surprising than genetics. And when he said that, selective school the choice of schools in the uk they ran the test of how important is it the decision which high school to go to and there were these schools people move houses to be close to these really good schools and it's not like it made little difference i think from memory he said it made less than one percent yeah and i i still find that hard to believe because it runs so contrary to everything we think about the power of of our environment yeah i was just left with that just building off that, Russ Roberts said something similar. He said, I don't answer any calls where they ask me to make a forecast. And I say, I can't make any forecasts. And the more I learn about economics, the less forecasting ability I have. I'll do it for your show if that's what you really want. But as I understand, my forecasting is close to useless. Yeah, It's the noise factor, right? Yeah. Well, we know, I mean, based on the stuff on forecasting, anything after six months, if there's complexity to it, meaning there's tons of variables that impact, uh, it's, it's, it's almost worthless. Uh, it's, just, it's just not predictable. But I have to say, uh, just coming back to Robert Plowman, you know, I followed him, prior, followed him for a few years. His, his stuff is so counterintuitive. Intuitive. It is so powerful when he says, Genetics is the most important thing that parents should know about when it comes to mental health and behavior, that kids are different because of genetics, and he's got data to back this up. And it's just, it really, 
it was very challenging. And I have to say, there have been a number of the shows that I found very, very challenging to myself, sort of old school thinking or things where I have really reframed my thinking because of the principle of charity. And like I'm, what? Oh, I, I would say um, just even this, the, the, the episode on free will. Uh, as much as I criminals, the criminals deserve to be punished. Yeah, and you know, which was discussion on free will. And as much as I sort of understand free will, there's nothing in me emotionally or that just constitutes me that I'm going to go. I don't believe I have no free will. I just, I just can't, I just can't take that in. And so, it's, I found that very challenging. I found Claire Demon's episode um, where she sort of reflected on her education in psychology and, and I think it was in the liberal arts and I it forced me to reflect on my own when I was at university and that is where the, a lot of my lecturers were much more interested in indoctrinating me than providing me with knowledge um, and it really it really challenged me to think about my university education and the other thing that I found, sorry, I'm going on a bit, but two other episodes I found quite powerful, um, going to Jonah's point about Russ Roberts, but I just thought he made things so simple around our understanding of social media when he just said it's more profitable for people to be cruel than to be kind. They actually, it's just emotionally and financially more profitable to be cruel, hence part of his explanation for what's happening in uh, the social media world and how nasty it is. And of course, hence we should be concerned. I'm now retracting a little on AI. Um, but is my last... why, Lloyd, is this why we can't retire on our, um, on the, on the revenue from this podcast? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> we could, I could get some people on, we could increase our advertising revenue. But my last comment uh, was was a was one thing that I thought also had a profound impact on me intellectually, uh, even though it seems obvious. Was Greg Connolly's uh, explanation about why conservatism is good, and you know, part of it, what he was saying is, just don't think that history and the past is always bad. Don't just throw it away, uh, because. If you throw it away, many negative things can happen. And just be a little more cautious, which is in part what conservatism is. I mean, conservatism stems from the word conserve. And, you know, for me, that's quite challenging. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Well, it wasn't just that. No, I think he was just saying, don't just throw everything away from the past. Take your time. Make it more organic. Now, that we know can have terrible negative consequences. Uh, but equally, we also see massive destruction and anarchy as not always positive. So those were some of the highlights for me. Oh, one other highlight I am going to mention is is uh, the episode with Jane Campion. I found her so inspiring in her honesty about herself. I mean, her ability to know herself and to talk about herself with such self-confidence and no shame uh, I found very inspiring. Are you generally surprised by how uh, honest and vulnerable the guests are willing to be on, on your segment on the, on the couch? Because, it, you know, they talk about all sorts of things. They talk about abuse. They talk about domestic violence. They talk about their relationship with their mothers or children. Is that something you want to lean into more of? Yeah. 
John, it's a good question. I hadn't thought of it that way. Am I surprised? Um, I suppose I'm not surprised, but then I, I was expecting them to do that anyway. But um, in general, I think we have a, a sample of people who uh, are confident, comfortable with themselves. That always makes it easier, to be honest. Uh, we know dishonesty comes from often insecurity, insecurity and not feeling comfortable with yourself. Um I would like to push them a little harder on on some of their history and how it has shaped their views. Um, somehow I haven't found an angle into that and um, because I think our history does shape our views and sometimes makes us less charitable and we need to monitor that and be more self-conscious. But I really haven't found an angle. But I have so appreciated their honesty, mm. and especially about you know my questions around the discipline in which they work or the subculture, I found them to be quite self-critical and um, extremely authentic and honest about it. Yeah. I mean, it goes to the one of the early points about the purpose of the podcast. And I think seeing people, I know you want, Lloyd, people to be, you know, more dramatically clashing and struggling to find the principle of charity, um, which which is really illuminating. But so is seeing people who are able to just reflect on their own institutions mm. and look at the limits of the institutions and how it's maybe blinded them to other points of view. If we can model intellectual humility and charitable thinking and sort of turning the spotlight on ourselves and going, where are our blind spots? What are the weakest arguments from of our own and also of our discipline? And, you know, you, you discussed that with um, Francesco about the London School of Economics and, and, and he was really open about that. I, I just don't know if there are that many forums where you get to hear people ask those sort of questions. Yeah. So I know after I finish my segment, I'm, I enjoy it. I turn off my microphone and I sit back and I listen to you. And and I just love hearing those questions and the answers because I, I honestly don't get to hear them in other forums. No, do you think I, that the, the people who are self-reflective are happier? Do you think the, do you, do you think they would be better off not seeing their blind spots. Well, can I, can I, I mean, again, <laughs> it's whether happiness is the aim here. I mean, I think self-reflective people um, have richer lives or you could say self-reflective people are more self-reflective. I mean, it just depends on what the aim is. And I, and I think for me anyway, I guess it's that sort of matrix question, which pill would you want to take? You know, mm. would you prefer a more complex, maybe less, a monotonously happy, yeah, um, less self-reflective life, or a more self-reflective, more complex and 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 and, and richer life. Uh, what would you prefer, Jonah? Ah, uh, I, I remember getting asked this question um, in uni. Like it was, it's called Nozick's Experience Machine. You you can plug in and have just the hedonistic reality of everything you've ever wanted all the time. Yeah. Or you can not plug in, and that's just the question, right? And broadly, the conclusion is you shouldn't plug in because pure pleasure isn't pure happiness. Because you lose the satisfaction of earning things and overcoming obstacles and so solving problems. But I always thought that a real experience machine, like a real pleasure machine, would 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 have overcoming obstacles and the feeling of satisfaction built in and that's something i would without a doubt plug into 
Well, you certainly don't believe in free will or the virtue of free will. If you're happy to sort of take happiness without any uh, any of the freedom needed to feel like you've earned your earned the desserts. Yeah, well, I believe that thinking that you've earned your desserts can be faked by the simulation, <laughs> which we might be in. Yes, yeah, but, but Emil, I don't think the. I think your question is: Does self-reflection make you happier or not? I think it depends on the type of self-reflection. Um, if my self-reflection is anchored on an emotion of worry and anxiety, and that's my baseline from which I start, then my self-reflection will have anxiety and worry as a key component of it. Not always, but often. If my self-reflection comes from a point of satisfaction, of a point I only worry about things that I can control, um, it comes from a meta understanding or an awareness of what is happening, then I think your self-reflection is a source of enormous, enormous happiness and pleasure. Or maybe comfort, a sort and of comfort. comfort and, sure. Mm. Because, it, because you know, you're right that if you're... If, if, if what you're doing, I guess it's the word reflection, if your self-obsessive obsession, your sort of self-pecking um, is just a way of, feed, you know, can become a way of feeding your anxiety, yes. can't it? Mm, you know, yes. you're anxious, so you're, you know, you're reflecting, you're reflecting, and it's just a way of keeping you in a sort of anxious um, rat, rat... The hamster wheel. Hamster wheel, thank you, rat loop, hamster wheel. Uh, people who are very self-reflective and are consistently within that orbit are incredibly selfish, uh, quite narcissistic because they're only thinking about themselves, seldom ask questions of other people and how they're doing, and are so psychologized that um, I think they can be extremely ungenerous, although they don't look like selfish people, but actually in their way they conduct the conversation, it is often all about them. And so you think they're psychologically sophisticated. Well, maybe they are, but they're certainly not socially sophisticated because they can get mm. quite boring. Mm. Can I ask, Lloyd, if you think you've become more charitable after three years of this show? I have definitely become more charitable. Hmm. I have definitely, <laughs> definitely. And yeah. I'm finding it sometimes because I'm more conscious of it, I'm not enjoying it. I don't... I'm definitely more charitable and I'm not enjoying some of my charitability. Uh, what, what, what do you mean you're not, you mean you're, you're not enjoying because you notice when you're not charitable? Yeah, I notice, when I'm, being charitable. I, I notice when I'm not charitable. I'm trying hard to be charitable. I want to say, I just had a conversation this morning uh, with a cousin of mine, not you, Emil, and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, I was going, I cannot believe you are saying this. This is just... You, you don't understand how prejudiced you are. And, and I'm going, okay, just listen to this person. She's also very kind, very generous in those aspects. Just listen before. And I'm going, I'm finding this hard. Now, I, I, and I have, I have quite a lot of friends. I, I am in the business world. And uh, in the business world, it is a plethora of different opinions. It's not just a bubble. And um, I find it really, really hard to stay open-minded. I find it exhausting. Um, and I just... Well, you know, to your point, you've always talked about the intellectual horsepower it needs to be open to other viewpoints. And just how comfortable 
it is, I guess it goes back to that original point I made about the opinions are a dime a dozen. It's so mm. easy. It feel, It's the easier option to settle on opinion. It's such a nice feeling yes. when yes. you know what you think. Agreed. It's a relief. You can actually now um, discount 90% of things people totally. say because you're like, well, I've thought about it and I, I think X and Y and it's, it just feels so nice. Do you think people are also undervaluing the fun aspect of fully believing something and then fighting for it? Like it's an enjoyable... Like that is to a degree what you were doing in your activist anti-apartheid days, right? You were bought into an idea and you were fighting with every cell in your body and Yeah. Yeah, you weren't being charitable. That energizes you. You were energized by your Right? Hey, you weren't being yeah. charitable. Exactly. And not to say that you should have been, but it energizes you in a way that I'm not sure finding the nuance in every yeah. little bit of the argument does, you know. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Jonah. I think, you know, this comes back to the conversation about ambiguity, actually. Uh, it is just easier to feel self-righteous, to know your enemy, to know mm. your opponent. To Listen, having clarity is a wonderful thing. And having clarity about who's an idiot and who isn't is just, it's just nice. It's it's a wonderful there, thing. There is the negative of it for me, Lloyd. Is is and it goes back to your point about you sort of bring your instinct and your emotional, you know, your sort of emotional calibration to to whatever you you know that you come across, and you sort of then think about things in that way. That for me, I find anger a difficult emotion, and so if I was was a hundred percent sure of something. And I would spend a lot of my time angry with people who didn't think that way. And mm. anger for a lot of people was very, um, you know, you talk about it being it's a, it's a, what is it? It's a very invigorating, it's, it's energizing emotion. For me, it's quite disturbing emotion. So I gain a lot of comfort yeah. from ambiguity. It's, it's a sort of happy place for me. But I can recognize that in a weird way. Yeah. It's the emotional underpinning uh, of all these things for us that, that, that gets us often to choose the, the um the intellectual path that suits yeah. us best so interesting you know there, there are so many i don't think all the benefits that have accrued from social change whether that is around racism gay marriage um discrimination of any form you can't engage and lead social change without anger uh, there has to be some source of anger about overturning and challenging those that are really defiling and humiliating others. Without anger, um, it's very hard to, to move. And sometimes ambiguity, um, you know, is, is a way of not engaging in strong social change. I think the other thing that's interesting is I wonder, I mean, uh, there's probably health benefits to having the nuanced view. Like, if you're if you're always angry, you're always in that sort of parasympathetic fight or flight mm. system, and then you're just covered. In, you you know it's stressful and yes, probably not healthy to be dogmatic. Well, ambigu ambiguity, you could argue, isn't healthy either <laughs> psychologically. Because, <laughs> you know, are you going to be an anxious person or an angry person? Uh, you know, <laughs> the only options available. The only options, you know, do I wake up at 3 a.m. or do I punch my pillow? Which, yeah. uh, what's my choice? <laughs> <Or might. laughs> I think with, you know, when we're thinking about what sort of guest is the ideal guest for the podcast, guests who are experts but who are energized with some form of anger, you know, in favor yes. of their, their viewpoint is great because as, as you said, Lloyd, you know, you can't see the principle of charity in action unless someone has something at stake. 
and if you just have an equanimity over everything, no. it's just too easy to be charitable. And and but and, I, you know, and sorry, can I just say, Andrew Denton, yeah. Andrew Denton, is actually demonstrates a level of anger about, you know, about what is happening around voluntary assisted dying. At the same time, he is so measured, so clear, and also charitable. He's sort yeah, of it's quite extraordinary. It's quite extraordinary it's how extraordinary. he brings all of that together, but yeah. he doesn't let go of his anger about what is happening at present, and that has led him to stay, give up on a massive career, and focus on social change. It's, he's, he's quite a remarkable person. It, it's amazing. I also reflect on um, my sister's animal rights organization, Voiceless, and the people who've worked in that organization, it's in the same office space as mine over, over many, many years now. I'm always amazed at how um, how happy they are. I don't mm. know how it works really psychologically, but uh, they're, they're, you know, they are energized every day by yeah. the injustice. And this is serious injustice. If you are on the side of animals and believe that the whole system is structured, you know, to, to do just the most awful, immoral things. Um, and, of course, you're never thanked by the animals. Mm. Um, uh, you know, you're speaking on their behalf. They are voiceless. It's just an incredibly difficult place to be in every day. But I think probably if you're someone who is naturally just very angry and very dark, it's not sustainable to be in that industry no. for that long. Maybe Maybe certain people can live in that place, but... Well, I've just it? noticed weirdly that they, they tend to be quite upbeat, but I haven't quite worked out how they, maybe I should ask them. Well, but those are the people in the office, right? Like I wondered, like the people who are going on and taking over ships might be very different and they're all doing it on, on the behalf of animals. So, I mean, that might just be the particular sample size of a small charity but it's a different system to fighting. Like there are people who are fighting. That's right. With guns to save animals, and they probably don't. No, have but maybe time. they maybe they sit around afterwards and and able to have a, a beer and a laugh. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I, I remember thinking this in the film industry early on that the it's an incredibly stressful industry production in film and television. Like it is organized chaos with the emphasis on chaos. You know, you have a day to shoot a whole scene. And you've been planning it for three years and there are just 20 things that can go wrong that do go wrong and you're just managing mm, it on the mm, fly. Mm, mm. And the people who work in the most stressful part of it, the people on set dealing with chaos and, you know, the production designers and art directors and you need to, you know, the directors change their mind and you suddenly got to rebuild the set. Um, but they're shooting it next week, but it's been moved to two days time because the weather shifted. These people are almost comatosely calm. Mm. And I used to never understand that till I realized that, of course, the people who are not like that last about two years. <laughs> so so you you often get, and a, and a friend of mine um, selecting started her, her career in social work. And I realized uh, through conversations with her that the people who can last the distance are often quite tough people. Because if you're so sensitive to what you see every yeah. day, it would just be really hard to last the distance. So you get some really weird, um, well, weird that's anomalies a, there. You know, it's so funny. I was, it's the same conversation I sometimes have with senior executives because I'm fortunate that I work not just with CEOs, but some of the, you know some very senior CEOs who have lasted the distance. And 
One of their traits is they just don't take things so seriously. I mean, you know, they're not leading organizations of 500 people or 2,000 people. They're leading organizations of 30,000, 50,000, 100,000, 500,000 in the case of large-scale, you know, professional service firms. And their ability just to sort of wave things away gives them such an equanimity they're neither anxious nor anger, angry. Yeah, they just and, and also they can let go much faster than other people. It, it's it's a why know, is you, that, Lloyd? Is it is it just in them or do they? Have I think it's in them. That could be, no, could be I, I, I think it's in them, and then they've developed skills around that particular trait. It's a bit like traders, right? Um, you know, traders are so different to to business people. Um, they make a bad trade. They lose ten million bucks. And they still, you know, they're losing 10 million bucks and they're comfortable selling the asset, right? Whereas yeah, other yeah. people are going to hold on and I hope the, the price goes up and I hope my stock goes up and I'm sure it will. And they just can't let go. But These couldn't people, you just be an anxious person who studied sunk cost theory and then learn that from a trader? No, because I think it's too hard. I think it's the, when you're skinny, when there's so much skin in the game, I think, you know, your experience, your trades, your drivers overwhelm you. I think you can manage it. But I think there's just certain people that have got... Well, they, those- they stick the course, don't they, the traders? They they stick to their plan and don't let their emotions... They're, yes. they're able to control their emotions. I mean, I, you know, talking about CEOs and traders, I'm wondering, Lloyd, do emotions generally get in the way of good outcomes in professions? Or yeah. Well, are there well, some... I mean, I guess psychologists, empathy is a helpful emotion, but, you, you know, you don't... Yeah, the problem with with all of that conversation is, and it's boring to say, but it's context-driven, right? We know for ourselves our greatest strength will hurt us in certain situations. It will be our Achilles heel. It won't just be a weakness. Mm. It will bring us down. I, I, I see people who have enormous intellectual and emotional strength and it is that very strength that cannot lead them to the next step in their career or their profession. For example, some people, uh, I would say I'm, I'm one of those, I am very outcome focused. I have been a lot in my life and that is a massive strength for me. It has allowed me to build uh, human rights organizations. It's allowed me to build my own company. But that focus of mine on being very outcome focus, which is a strength, in a certain context is one of the most limiting factors. Uh, It often drives me to be less inclusive, to be more hurried, to have less slow conversations with people, to build more long-standing relationships over a lunch rather than a half an hour meeting. I used to pride myself on never having a lunch meeting. In retrospect, that is just stupid you know, from a relationship point of view, from a sustainable long-term point of view. And I would say that has that has cost me. Well, this is where the, the AI comes in, right? Because when you're a trader, you can take the emotion out of it by putting in a, a sell if the stock go below, goes below the certain price. And that way you don't have to emotionally decide whether you're losing or not. You build that when you're, when you're in a good situation and then you've got an algorithm that takes the emotion out of it in the same way that a poker yeah. player could say if i lose three hands in a row no matter what i leave the table yeah in the same way that you could say if i skip three lunch meetings in a row 
I'm going to go to the next lunch meeting no matter what it is. You can build you, you can build a sure, rule set around it, right? Yeah, that's habit. I mean, part of that is deliberate action, thinking about what you should do. But to get to the insight first for me, to understand that I was outcome focused for me yeah. a while. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's, <laughs> that that's the hard bit. That's that the hard wasn't uh, one one coaching session. Jonah, if you think Jonah that a, a Bing notification on your computer screen saying um, you've hit this, you know, your stocks hit this level, don't sell it or or do sell it, that that's going to stop you doing what you want to in a panic situation. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking mm-hmm. about what do you do when you panic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very hard, um, you know, to to uh, um, you know, you really need to be to have given up control or to be totally in control of your emotions. Uh, I guess it's that question of what's the right level of emotion because humans mm. need, without emotions, we don't know how to make decisions. But if we're overwhelmed by our emotions, um, we, we make the wrong ones. Yeah. Um, I'm stealing this one from Tyler Cowan. Uh, Lloyd, what tabs do you have open right now? What tabs? Yeah, because this will say Ooh. what you're really interested in. This will say what you actually spend your time doing. I have a club for the cancelled, which is... A article that my wife sent me from the New Yorker. I have not read it. I have uh, research on a potential podcast we will be doing called Islam versus Christianity. I have something on artificial intelligence, and I have Arsenal Football Club. Okay. And 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 the the transfer list, and are they going to make certain transfers or not? Uh, they 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 need to. For the niche port part of the audience who's interested. Yeah, I'm sure this will bore a lot of people. Okay. Um, Emil, what tabs do you have open? I have, I normally have a bunch of film, TV tabs, media tabs open, IMDb, Rotten Tomatoes, a bunch of articles that I'm yet to read um, when I'm sort of looking through directors and writers and researching shows. And then I've got a bunch of things related to, to, principle, of, um, to principle of charity. I mean, one of the topics that I do want to tackle at some point is gender. Uh, and I've got a couple of tabs open in relation to that to try to find who might be the right guess. It's, You're on um, record as not identifying as male, by the way. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I said that I think if I was at university now, I probably would have dispensed with gender because it feels like maybe that would be a um, a just a sort of interesting progressive thing to do. Um, I'm not so sure that gender's that helpful yeah. uh, or relevant, but... Mm. Um, uh, you know, not talking about biological sex, but sort of, yeah, you know, yeah, gender of to the extent that there isn't uh, an, an, a social identity anymore. But I do want to, I, I want to actually answer just quickly, Jonah, a question you asked before about do, whether I think I've become more charitable with the principle of charity. Yeah, um, yeah. For me, when I was thinking about this, as you were asking that question, it's actually the research itself has made me more charitable. Mm. That, you know, I don't think I'm probably more or less charitable in my daily life, uh, but doing the work of trying to understand other viewpoints and fleshing out my understanding of other viewpoints, understanding it has has made me more charitable to them. Yep. And I can respect viewpoints that maybe previously I, I wasn't really able to fully respect. So for me, it's actually doing the work of listening and understanding and reading that mm. that that makes you um, that makes you charitable. Otherwise, it can be just very hypothetical. Be charitable. What does that mean? It yeah. means actually go out of your way and try to understand uh, what you don't know. Last question here, Lloyd. You can only keep one: golf, meditation, 
news, television, or work? What do you choose and why? Meditation. Really? Honestly? Well, (laughs) (laughs) surely it's golf, Lloyd. From a pleasure point of view, it's definitely golf. From a sustainability point of view, I need meditation to keep on enjoying my bad golf days. So, (laughs) (laughs) that's a good answer. (laughs) And also, uh, meditation helps me enjoy my swimming. It helps me enjoy my walks. It helps me enjoy colors. It helps me enjoy my food. Uh, it's, it's, it's the anchor point for so much pleasure in my life. Um, whereas golf is quite, you know, you really wasted a lot of your life, not meditating when you think of how recent it is. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. (laughs) But I plan to have no regrets in my next meditation. You have to just begin again right now as a new person. Oh my God. There's only now. There's only now. You can't hold on to the past. Okay. Emil, you can choose one of the following nonfiction books. Movies, meditation, exercise, or allied health services. So that's chirotherapy, all, all this stuff that you like. I, I have to go with nonfiction books. Yeah, I thought you might, yeah. I mean, it's sad, empathetic, but I I weirdly it is, find... It is actually... Can I just say... He gets off on learning. This guy's got a problem. Get your comments about my, my regrets around meditation. It is sad. <laughs> you know, when I get into bed at night and I pick up my nonfiction books... Oh, my God. I, it just relaxes me. Oh. I just go into a place of rela- relaxation. Everything goes calm. All the problems <laughs> go away. And... Um, you really aren't afraid of ambiguity. He's not afraid of it at all. Well, I, I think nonfiction books aren't very... Uh, no, but he's learning what he doesn't know. He's learning how much he doesn't know. I'm learning what I don't know. Yeah, well, we don't know that. We don't know that. We don't know what type of nonfiction books he's reading. I want to see him pick up a book on a right-wing historian. Then I'll, then I'll... Well, I picked up a book on conservatism, which is the genesis of that podcast. And I was, I was like, what? You know, very predisposed to think conservatism is 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 a bunch of you know accumulation of nationalist racist um uh ideologies and and i felt less so by the end of it uh but meditation for me has has been been life transforming um there you go not just as a not just as a way to be calm but as a way to genuinely understand existence in a different way yeah, and just yeah, yeah. See, seeing existence as a flow of present experiences uh, um so that would be hard to give up okay i'm gonna throw Emil a question binary you have to choose playing golf with me or doing the principle of charity podcast with me you have to choose one <laughs> <laughs> there's no doubt principle of charity podcast <laughs> Throw that question back in me and see what happens. Yeah, what about you, Lloyd? That's a harder question for you. <laughs> Why? Because of my greater commitment to golf. Yeah, I don't want to know the answer. Let's just say I'm And on that note, thanks everyone. Thanks everybody. Beautiful. If you're enjoying Principle of Charity, the best thing you can do is leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. That is how we go up in the algorithm and spread the word. And tell people, word of mouth is is still uh, an ancient but powerful technology. See you soon.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.